Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with True, a podcast dedicated to the region's high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their insights, advice, and experiences on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I'm a partner at True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post-IPO. With over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach, working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, and technical experts. This week, we have a Christmas bumper special with Ditesh Gatani from Grab. Ditesh joined Grab as one of the first few engineers back when it was called My Taxi. He has grown with the business into a member of the senior leadership team and has run hundreds of technical staff across the core business lines of Grab. More recently, heading up the Grab Financials Engineering. Tatesh generously shares a wealth of learnings, insights, and some brilliant anecdotes on how they solve market-first scale problems whilst growing one of Asia's most successful technology companies. He also gives his views on the exciting future that technology will help bring about during a fun and very informative quick-fire question round. Good morning, Tatesh. Thank you very much for joining me, joining me on the podcast today. Um, it's really, really great to have you here. Um, how are you? How are you getting on? How have you been? Hi, hi, Sam. Um, th- thank you for having me on. Um, I, I'm I'm doing well. <laughs> it has been a roller coaster of the year, but I'm glad. Uh, you know, as the year ends, you know, it's ending on a on good news. You know, with with the vaccines rolling out. So, hoping for a better 2021. I think as we um yeah definitely as we as we all are. So how how has this year been for you? How has the how has the business coped with with COVID? Where where have you been this year? Have you been caught with any any lockdowns anywhere or sort of you know how's the how's the team in general and and, and you've been handling it? Um, I I think it has been to some extent uh, a year full of surprises for for many people. Um, and you know, people, I think, have been trying to figure out how to cope with this, uh, both in their personal and professional lives. Um, you know, when, when this first started, it was a little, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out what's the right approach to handle the situation. Um, but very quickly, it became apparent to us how, what, what the general strategy should be. Um, both on the business side as well as you know making sure that you know people were within the organization were taken care of um so yes that that's what uh you know after a month or two uh, things kind of fell into place and uh, since then i would say uh, you know work has been progressing reasonably well uh, people took them a few months to get uh, get used to working from home but once they did um you know things things have been running just fine Fantastic. I mean, that sounds great, and I think it's um uh, of, of all of all the, the the sort of disciplines within within business. Obviously, software engineering is something that perhaps has um, a reasonable history in sort of distributed teams and, and being able to work remotely. So, so perhaps there were some sort of learnings that you guys had already that 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 helped with the uh, the transition. It yes, it it did help that the teams already distributed. Um, you know, we, we we have we have a number of uh, distributed R and D centers around the world, so we already had 
you know, even prior to COVID, we had to work across time zones. We had to work across different, you know, uh, geographical, uh, you know, nuances. So in that sense, the team was more or less, you know, they, they, they were in that mode. I think that probably with COVID, the, the stress really came for, for the individuals. The stress really came from not knowing where things were going. Um, how, you know, in, in their personal lives, how do they deal with the uncertainty? So within the organization, we made sure that we provided that support to people, um, you know, in the form of um, uh, coaching sessions, counseling sessions, so on, which which has helped quite quite a bit. And what was um, I guess what was the most effective thing that you you sort of did to support the guys at, at that time? Because um, obviously I know you know there was a lot of talk around sort of mental health. There's a lot of talk around that real feeling of uncertainty and so sort of no idea where the world is actually heading. Um, well, what did you guys do that you felt was particularly good at that time? It just providing a a, a level of certainty and transparency as to where we were as an organization helped a lot. Um, pe people didn't know um, how COVID had impacted the business and they wanted to know. So providing the transparency helped, you know, a lot. Providing transparency as to how we're going to deal with it helped a lot. Um, the second thing that, you know, from my observation that has really helped is just providing a forum to allow people to talk about how they're feeling, allowing others in the organization to reach out, you know, to, to provide some level of empathy to, to the individual experiences that people are going through has, has really helped. You know, this took not just, you know, while they, there was a certain formal structure on how some of these programs were conducted, you know, there was also a lot of uh, informal groups that set up, that were set up within the organization that, you know, people just got into their respective uh, tribes, right? Uh, those engineers got uh, together with the other engineers, the, the business development folk got along with their other business development folk, and they're just talking about the type of challenges that they, are, uh, they had to go through together. Um, and, and that just helped a lot, um, you know, on the engineer, mm -hmm. software engineering uh, front, you are right that, you know, when, when you state that, you know, it's, it's an industry or it's a discipline that lends itself to a lot of, uh, you know, remote work setup, that, that is true. But what we didn't realize, and that came out only through conversations with, with affected teams was that work-life balance got affected quite quite substantially because there was no end to the day so to speak right there was no official time when uh, the day ends and then uh, they, they could go back to their family so it became very long days for many people and when that uh, came out through uh, through through the group sessions that we had you know when that feedback came through one thing that we had to do very explicitly was to say everybody sets their you know what what is their end of the day and that's it that's the end of the day and then they go on to you know, personal and fa family, you know, what, yeah. what's important to them in their personal life. I, I, I had to go on, on a few, you know, all hands type of sessions and tell them, look, this is how I run my day. And I, you know, I walk them through how at a certain time of the day and I, and I just switch off, you know, no more work, no more email, no more Slack, you know, it's just family time. And just people hearing it from a leader, I think, empower, give them a sense of empowerment, right? That, that you know, if, if, if others in the organization can do that, then so can I. So, yeah. <laughs> there were certain challenges, Sam, um, but but uh, but I but I would say it has gone reasonably smoothly. That's that's great, and I think one of the um I think one of the interesting sort of findings, or it was probably obvious to people in the know, but um, how much um, how important a lot of the time the informal communication around the office is, which which a lot of lost. 
um, they lost the social aspect they lost that sort of informal communication between between colleagues um, and that was very difficult i think um, to to replicate throughout covid but i know a lot of businesses moved into to try and do that um, but it, yeah it was an interesting interesting time and hopefully one where we're close to the end of now yeah i mean that, that that's 100 percent no, I, you know, right. That that social fabric, I think, is what uh, just super. It was just super important to many people. Not not just a social fabric, but I would even describe it as a social routine. Right? They would come into work every day. They would have breakfast with a set of people. They'd have lunch with a set of people. Tea with a set of people. They may have after work activities with with their colleagues. You know, all of that just disappeared overnight. And you know, people's uh, emotional health was affected. Um, you know. Not not having this folk to talk to on a regular basis, you know, would impact things like psychological, you know, the, the psychologically how how safe they feel. So it, it took some time, I think, for people to adapt. Yeah, and and to to some extent, the organization also had a role to play in guiding and and showing the path as to how do we operate in this new normal. What I'd like to sort of dig into in, in, in a short way is really sort of your your experiences as a leader. Obviously you've you've led sort of incredibly large teams and, and so we'll we'll get onto that. But what I'd what I'd like to do at this point is perhaps take it back a few years and, and find out a little bit more about sort of I guess how you got into software engineering, your route through to to grab. I know you had a, a good stint at Air Asia, um, but could you perhaps talk to us a little bit about what got you excited about software engineering in the first place, and what brought you into the industry? And um, obviously, sort of you know in Malaysia a while ago, it wasn't hugely well known for software engineers. Um, I guess at that stage. So, what was it that sort of got you interested in that journey, and then took you through to that sort of that career choice? Um, <laughs> you know, I I, I started coding when I was, I think when I was 11 or 12, uh, you know, um, so, so long before I got into the industry, um, I, I was already, uh, you know, developing software, writing software. Um, it, to, so it, the, it, it was from very early on, it was very clear that this is what, you know, I wanted to do. And it was also very clear, like, look, this is something that I'm just, you know, I don't have to spend much time thinking. It just comes to me naturally. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it helps when your career, you know, vocation, you know, um, pro, you know, when you have that attraction to that field, it really helps. Um, in, 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 in school, I actually, I studied uh, E&E. Um, so I, I didn't study computer science per se, I studied E&E. And uh, I think that the, the main reason was really that the, the, the math courses in E&E looked like a lot more fun. Uh, than computer science math courses. And, and I, I, you know, I, I've got to admit, uh, the two lessons that I walked out of was that I, I, I would never make a great electrical or electronics engineer. I've got too many burnt diodes <laughs> to, <laughs> as a testament uh, to that. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not a hard, you know, in no way am I good at this hardware. But the other thing I walked away with was that just an, a really great appreciation for math. Um, I, there were some really good uh, math teachers in, in in school, and and man, I I just enjoyed those times in university, just you know spending that time doing math. And then um, you know we we got into the industry, um, you know, developing software for for companies. Um, you know, th this was in the early two thousands. You know, it it this was long before mobile came into. Um, 
in, into our lives. Uh, this was the days of the 3310 Nokia, you know, unbreakable phones um, with, 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 with ringtones and, you know, um, the entire industry that sprouted up around ringtones and around uh, the, the, the screen, what do you call this? I think it was just screensavers or something that they were selling. Anyway, uh, so um, we built lots of web apps. And in the process, I realized that what I had missed out on was that formal education in computer science. So actually, I, I went back and I, and I studied that formally. And, and that's where, um, you know, computer science provides, you know, it's very different from software engineering, right? Software engineering is just a set of practices in, you know, developing robust, scalable software, um, whereas computer science is, it's, it's a science, right? You're studying, you know, formal, formally how, um, you know, algorithms, data structures, systems are, are, are constructed. And, and you know, it, it, it really colored, um, it really built a worldview whereby uh, it provided a systems level understanding of how things should be built. And, and, and that type of understanding could apply not just to software, it could apply to organizations, it could apply to, um, you know, any type of uh, entity where a formal understanding, you need to apply a formal structure and understanding to it. Um, and, and I would say that it has really helped in terms of, um, you know, later in my career in terms of building scalable organizations, which share, share many of the same characteristics with building scalable, you know, with building scalable software. Obviously, you talked about sort of some of the um, sort of the, the 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 analogous principles between building scalable software and scalable organization. Well, what are perhaps a couple of those principles, and 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 how do you apply them from from one side to to the other? Well, one one thing that we learn in computer science very early on, you know, literally it's it's chapter one or two in you know algorithms and data structures, is that as your data set increases. Um, you know, and, and typically we, we, we use the term N to de describe the size of the data set. When your size of your data set gets very large, different types of algorithms will have different uh, characteristics, yeah? So um, this, you could apply this understanding to organizations. When you've got a small organization, it will behave in a certain way. And when the organization gets larger, the same management techniques that you've applied to that small organization will simply not scale, yeah? And that at scale, um, you you will need to build uh, appropriate structures um, in order to allow to the organization to deal with um, you know with, with just a very large number of people. Uh, diff different types of dynamics pop up when when the organization gets very large. So so that's that's one one such example um, that you just got to think about how you treat organizations at different stages. Of, of their evolution. And, and I like to break it up to basically, um, I, I think about it in terms of how mature the product is, right? When the product is going from zero to one is when, you know, when, when you don't have product to, uh, when you have some level of product market fit, then when it's going to from one to 10, um, where, you know, you're, you're scaling the product out to some extent, and then 10 to hundred is when you have, you know, hundred percent hit product market fit. And then it's just all about scale. And then from hundred to 101, where you, your, your, your product can't grow any further, uh, is kind of platooed, and then subsequently there's just incremental uh, growth in, in in the product. Yeah, so so as you know, the organization as the product <laughs> hits the market and and you know finds its footing in the market, um, the organization similarly has got to 
grow, right? To, to respond to how the product is doing in the market. And, and it, it goes through those stages as well. And at its stage of development, there are different uh, characteristics that the organization has got to uh, take on. There are different things that it's got to optimize for. So, so that's one such example. Another really great example is that, and this really comes more from math, is that you can only optimize for certain, you know, for an object, you know, if you've got an objective function, you can opti only optimize for it if you know what the constraints to that objective function are. So whatever that the organization wants to try to optimize for, the first question is not to ask, uh, well, it, it is to know what you're going to optimize for, but the, the, the really the, the key question is, what are the constraints that we're operating in? Once the constraints are clear, then it becomes, you know, the, the path to defining, you know, how to meet the goals of your objective function become very clear. And, and then at each stage of development, the objective function of the organization is going to be different, yeah? So, I, you know, it's just taking a very formal uh, uh, lens to, to thinking about organizations, thinking about people, thinking about, you know, the product in the market, uh, thinking about market forces um, that, that I think has, you know, has really shaped, uh, can, can really lead to uh, a far more uh, rigorous uh, discussion and outcome. That's fascinating. Um, I think one of the, one of the things, uh, perhaps a really, a really sort of basic sort of analogy of the, the, the first thing you mentioned there is of obviously when data got so big that um, relational databases could no longer manage it. And so they had to build a new, you know, obviously some NoSQL technology and, and then ability to, to use that. And that's, I guess, you know, as organizations grow, you, you, you would have to invent new ways of managing the size. Um, and I think it's interesting as well, looking at sort of uh, to, really understand a product and a capability you have to understand the constraints around it um, and I think that's something that you don't necessarily immediately um, think of when you're when you're sort of a, a manager perhaps you, you sort of think more about applying the principles that you've got that you've you've used that have got you successful to this point um, where actually that then you, you kind of need to continue evolving that thinking as this as this changes and as the business grows that's that's really really interesting insights thank you yeah and and what one thing I mean, the, the thing to note is that it, it, while we were in the journey of growth, a lot of this wasn't evident. It's only, you know, with the lens of hindsight that we can, ah, okay, um, this is how we grew as an organization. And this was our instinctive response to it, which, you know, in retrospect, it all makes sense, right? But while we are in, in, the, middle of, in the middle of it, you know, we, we may not have that uh, re realization. Yeah, interesting. And I think it's it's perhaps having gone through that journey, you you can pro you may be able to spot some of the signs again as you or a lot of the signs That's again right. as you if you were to do that journey again. But I, I guess it's um it's still um it's still you know when you're when you're sort of down in the weeds and it's chaotic and things, it's still it's still probably quite tough to to pick some of this stuff up. But at least if you've seen it, then you 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 can spot the signs of it. So that's right. That's right. It 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 kind of gives um it, it gives a it gives a broad roadmap, right? Like this is where we are going to go. Uh, and this is where we are in the journey, um, and and that helps a lot. And so, um, sorry, I, I sort of interrupted there just as we were getting onto your sort of time at time at Air Asia. Um, obviously, this seemed like a really pivotal time for the region, um, sort of that 2009-2014 sort of period. I mean, it was it was around the time I arrived in uh, in Southeast Asia. But you know, the the, the speed of, of of change of business that we saw over that that time was incredible. Um, so it must have been quite a 
quite a fascinating time to be as a, a, a business like AirAsia, which has grown sort of significantly throughout that time. Um, so talk to me a little bit about your journey into that business and, and, and some of the interesting things I guess you, you did while you were there. So by the time I had joined AirAsia, they were already a reasonably successful organization. Um, they, they had successfully pioneered, uh, you know, that disruptive, uh, you know, their disrupted air travel in you know, Southeast Asia. No, no, no question. You know, <laughs> you know, life before Asia was uh, just very expensive flight tickets, uh, lack of flexibility, um, lack of options, really. So they, they, in that sense, they disrupted the industry. They really opened up, you know, an entirely new industry, right? Um, after Asia, many other low-cost carriers came into being in Southeast Asia, and and that was great. So this was a time of, if, if you if you recall, Blackberries and <laughs> uh, you know, uh, an iPhone had. I, I don't. I don't even think iPhone had come out yet. And so, the question was where you know where is the next growth phase of the organization going to come from? And we were looking at mobile. And my manager at that time was an ex BlackBerry, um, uh, you know, leader. And he said mobile. The growth is going to come from mobile. So what we did was we built. We basically built um, a, a, a mobile. Um, reservation platform in completely in-house and uh, this was really notable for two reasons the first reason was that at that time if i'm not mistaken it was less than half a percent of that asia's revenue came from 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 the mobile channel right so this was really a big bet uh, that the organization was making the second reason why this was notable was because for the first time asia was developing software in-house you know prior to this it was always outsourced to, to a third, third party technology vendor. Yeah. So this was the first software team in, in, in Asia. So we built this mobile platform from scratch. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a fairly small, tight knit group of people. And, you know, over a period of three to six months, you know, we, we just, you know, mind you, we had zero mobile background. So everything we had to learn from scratch, um, the richness of the mobile ecosystem, you know, that we have today wasn't present there. You know, mobile devices at that time were slow, clunky. I remember the first, I think the first iPhone came out. Uh, people got super excited with the Zoom feature, you know, you know, that, 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 you know just to kind of set the atmospherics and, and, and you know, uh, that, <laughs> this, this is how things were then. And, you know, people thought BlackBerry was, was the, the coolest thing ever, right? And, and, you know, to be fair, it was pretty cool. So we built it and um, it just took off. It just took off like a rocket ship, right? Um, there, it was clear that, you know, people wanted to book through the through a mobile channel, and it and you know, it's just that nobody had realized it before, and it just took off, and and uh, you know, the systems just you you know, we, we typically measure you know um, growth, you know, there, there are a number of different metrics, but one metric is just how much does your backend system need to grow, right? And our backend system just grew multiple fold to to cater for that demand. By the time I left, if I'm not mistaken, mobile traffic accounted for half of the half of Asia's revenues. Um, so, so it, it grew, you know, e easily. I would say 100x in in that period of five years. And I well, so I guess what were the? It sounds it sounds like sort of real kind of time frontier time, but you know, sort of a lot of a lot of groundbreaking work, a lot of firsts. Um, I guess when you were sort of building the tech and building the team, did you did you have any idea of sort of how how much sort of impact it was going to have at the time and, and and what did you look for in people when you were looking to bring them into the team because obviously you know you probably didn't have a bunch of other 
mobile sort of you know sort of providers or sort of you know companies that have built um software that runs on mobile devices in southeast asia that you could pull talent from so how did you how did you find people to to join we already had an in-house team that was that that you know Air asia had, had tried to build a, a social network um, which which unfortunately didn't uh, really find much footing and and so so that team we just repurposed them to build uh, this mobile platform, um, but then we did hire. You know, we we started you know growing the team. the The main characteristic that we were looking for is you know just a can do attitude. The you know at the end of the day, th there's a lot of value in you know having very strong engineers who can build robust, scalable systems. You know, th there's a lot of value there. But when you're going from zero to one, the more important characteristic is really just people who are just willing to roll up their sleeves and, and, and just say, I'm going to find a way to do this. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the early team was, was primarily just, be, just, just a set of people who just can do, yes, we, we'll sit down and we'll get this done. Yeah. And people who are just working for the sense of mission, the passion that, that really, I think made all the difference in the, you know, in, in, in the, in the early days. Yeah. I, I will say that again, this is in hindsight, but that was also true for the early grab technology team and you know in those days it was called my taxi right um, because at that in in 2013 2014 you know they, they were only serving um the, the taxi uh, market um and it was out of malaysia so you know they, they named themselves my my taxi um it, it was sim you know the, the early founding team was pretty much exactly you know had the same right they had that same characteristic they're just going to find a way to build the software they're going to find a way to make things work you know at, at my taxi i i can actually you know there are a couple of uh, you know people tell me you know how did you land on the right people and I'll, I'll tell them the story um our our mobile app was not built by a mobile engineer our first uh my taxi or grab mobile app was built by a, a systems administrator yeah he he was running all our, all of the backends. Uh, you know he was he was running uh, you know the database servers and you know he he was he was running the the, the backend systems and then he you know we had to build the app so he just rolled up his you know I was and said look I was always interested in mobile let me try this and he ended up building you know version one two three four of the mobile app just 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 to give a kind of flavor like this was the type of uh, this was the type of people that were in the early founding team. Keen to get into into the, the the grab story now. Obviously, we've started on it, but um, I guess keen to really understand um, what what you know how how did how did grab find you at first, and and what did you what did you walk into on day one? And yeah, perhaps you, perhaps if you want to start and sort of describe to us what you do now, and then go back to that day one uh, and sort of talk us a bit through the journey, because I know that there's been some incredible sort of scale problems you guys have solved um, and an incredible growth journey. So I'd love to hear love to hear all about that, really. So I, I've been at Grab for I think this might be this is going to be my seventh year, and I've taken on you know many different roles. Currently, I'm with the Grab Financial Group, and uh, there are a few um, you know I'm, I'm, I'm um, I, I, I'm, I'm overlooking the software and the engineering teams that uh, power the financial services. Um, but this has been a relatively new, newer role for me. Uh, prior to this, I spent about five to six years on the mobility side, uh, and that's really the ride-hailing business. And, and that's where I joined uh, in, in 2014. 
I, you know, it was a comfortable time, you know, at AirAsia, right? It was a big established organization and, uh, you know, and that provides with a certain level of comfort, you know, uh, but I, I kept hearing about this company called MyTaxi, right? Um, they had gone viral on Twitter and on, you know, social media a few times. And I knew somebody who worked there and, you know, it was an old college uh, school, school friend of mine who had reached out to me a few times to join the team. And I told him, no, I've got, you know, <laughs> I've got two kids, you know, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't think it's the right time to join a startup. And then he told me, you know, why, why don't you just come over? And one Friday evening I, I, I went over, you know, and I thought it'll be three people sitting around a table. And I was shocked to see that, um, you know, it was 8 p.m. on a Friday night and they had about, I think, 10 or 15 engineers and everybody was in the office. Uh, everybody was, you know, working. Um, they were having this, I, I remember they were having this really interesting, passionate debates about, you know, event sourcing systems and whether they should be using Cassandra or some other uh, database. And, and the level of passion and mission that, 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 you know, that team had. And I thought to myself, wow, this, this is just amazing. You know, they're, they're, they're building software because they really believe in just, you know, just building great, uh, you know, building a great product. And, uh, you know, I, I met, I met Anthony, the CEO, uh, that, that evening and, uh, and then I was sold. Right. Um, and, and I joined them soon after, you know, that, that, that group of 10, 15 people, um, were just, you know, just some of the most amazing people I've ever worked with in my life. Um, they, they, to, to some extent, you know, they, they, they were all, they, it was a very fairly tight knit group. Right. And, and this were people that were just, uh, had just, ju just joined the, had joined the organization through, you know, uh, referrals, you know, somebody knew somebody and then, uh, you know, they, they, they pulled the right people within the organization and this right people in my view, just brought with them, just so much of positivity, you know, willingness to build great software, build great products, very mission oriented. Uh, so just having the right people on day one, I think has made a big, made really a big difference to, you know, to, to my taxi uh, or, or grab in those days. It, it, it wasn't easy. Um, the, the first couple of years, I, I think I worked easily six to seven days uh, a week. Uh, my, my son was just born. <laughs> I remember that, you know, I, I just remember uh, you know, in the middle of the night when he would wake up to feed um, and, and I'll be burping him, I would get calls at, at 3 a.m. in the morning because some server somewhere had failed. So I had to, <laughs> you know, SSH in to restart those servers. So while I'm burping my son on one hand, you know, my other hand is on, uh, you know, is trying to <laughs> desperately SSH into the server to, to restart, you know, some service or other which had failed. It's not, in, it's not something I would do again, to be quite frank, but <laughs> it, it, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing when you have 10, you know, when you had that small group of people that were just in it, just, just in it all the time, it, it made all the difference in the world. The, 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 the business grew really, really fast. And I think in part, it was because the product had iterated a few times. Many people don't know this, but grab, you know, the, my taxi didn't start with an app. You know, th there was a version prior to that where it was fulfilling, um, you know, uh, it was software to fulfill, you know, for, for the taxi call centers, right? Um, and then at some point, you know, the, the team thought to themselves, huh, actually we can 
go directly to the consumer. We, we don't need to go through, you know, we don't need to go through this call center. And, and that I think is where it, the product really hit, you know, it really made that jump from zero to one. And that's when it started going viral in 2014. It, I think 2014 was the year when it hit about 100,000 rides a day. And, you know, rides a day was basically the metric that we were using. And I remember that, you know, we, 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 we had um, a Star Trek type of interface that one of the engineers had put up on, on, on a screen. So every evening we'll look and see what, what the daily record was. And almost every, every day was a new personal record. Every week, Fridays, would, we would see a 2x to 3x growth compared to the previous week, you know. So, so the growth rate was just incredible. And I remember one, you know, the slowest country to grow was Indonesia. One, and we were thinking, would it ever even cross a hundred rides a day? A hundred rides a day, um, you know, think about that number. We were, it was doing about 10 rides a day in 2014. <laughs> so one day it did cross a hundred rides. And I remember at the Christmas party in 2014, Anthony goes up and says, you know, we have passed a hundred thousand rides, you know, in all the countries, a hundred rides a day in uh, Indonesia. One year from now, we'll be doing a million rides. And I just looked left and right to my colleagues and I said, I, no, I was like, no way that, you know, there's no way we can get to a hundred, uh, sorry, to a million rides a day. Guess what? A year later, we are doing more than a million. It, it, it was just, you know, th that was the scale of growth. It was just in absolutely incredible. The thing with this kind of growth, however, is that, you know, it really put a tremendous amount of strain on the team, on the systems, right? Every week our systems would break just because they were not constructed for this type of, you know, rapid growth. Yeah. And it, and it did put a tremendous amount of pressure on the teams themselves because it's, you know, constant firefighting, you know, day after day, uh, week after week. And, you know, you know, when I was talking about working six, seven days a week, right. It, it was inevitable. We just had to do it just because um, th those, <laughs> you know, the, the, if, 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 if we didn't do it, look, the system would be down and, you know, people will not get rights you know, uh, across the city. I, I remember once the system went down, we were doing this massive migration and the system went down. And, and when I walked into the office, there were like hundreds of taxi drivers at the office and I, and I got pretty worried. Like, you know, is there going to be, you know, is there going to be an unfortunate event? Like, will there be a riot? You know, like what's happening? So I went to speak to the taxi drivers and I said, look, uh, uh, what's up? And, it, and they, 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 they had gathered there because they said, look, um, we understand your system is down. Is there anything we can do to help? <laughs> and I said, you know, I was just so taken aback by, wow. by that statement. And, and, you know, they said, you know, can we help in any way? You know, like, is there anything at all that we can do? And I said, you know, no, thank you very much, but, you know, we, we, we will bring it back soon. They were the warmest, kindest people that I've ever spoken to. They were just so genuinely, you know, they, they said, look, we know you're trying your best, you know, um, please, please understand that we are, we are just, that our livelihoods depend on this. Um, so I asked them, what do you mean by that? And they, and this, 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 he was an old, uh, uncle, uh, he's about in his sixties. And he told me, look, before my taxi, before Grab, every day I would earn about a hundred ringgit. And that's about uh, slightly less than 25 us dollars a day. Right. And out of which, you know, a certain a substantial portion of that would go off to pay yeah. uh, the consortium or the taxi company that he was be, he's with. So every single day, day's revenue matters to him. Right. Because he I, I, I literally remember this. He'll say, I've got, a, you know, I've got my children in university. I've got to pay for their education. So on. And, and 
then I then he said, now that your system is down, I can't make that daily wage anymore. So I told him, why can't you just go back to you know getting rights as you would have done before our system came online? And he told me, after your system came online, my daily wage increased from 100 ringgit to 300 ringgit. It had tripled. And that just meant that I could provide more for my family. And I've forgotten, he actually shared this with me. He told me I had forgotten how to go, how to take, uh, how to pick up passengers the normal way. Now I just go where the app tells me to go, right? And I know I don't have to worry about the type of passengers. I know that if there are any, you know, um, any disputes that the company is there to, uh, you know, support me. Uh, and, and mind you, the taxi industry in Malaysia at that time, you know, had a pretty bad reputation because there are a number of unfortunate incidences. But then even the passengers themselves, you know, the taxi drivers would get cheated by the passengers, right? So, you know, on, on both sides of some level of distrust, but on this platform, they said that, look, there's a high degree of trust, right? We trust it. We as taxi drivers trust it and our passengers trust it. And so it's, it's a pleasant experience all around. So they don't want to go back to how things were before. And I was just so touched by that. <laughs> you know, I went back to my team and I said, look, we have got to get the system up, right? Like thousands of people are, are depending on us. You know, we, we cannot... We, we, we cannot let them down. To, and to that, you know, I think that, ha, that basically provided the tech team with a mission, right? That we are here to do good. We are here to make, you know, to uplift the people of Southeast Asia. And, and you know, there's, you know, there's no, nothing that puts more energy in people than to have a strong sense of mission. What a wonderful story. Um, what a wonderful story. It's, um, it's just, a, yeah, it's one of the things, you know, I've done a, a number of these now, so speak, and I have the privileged position of speaking to a lot of, a lot of sort of people within tech. And I think the, um, one of these sort of overriding sort of key themes of keeping an organization fundamentally sort of happy and productive is having a mission and having, having a, something that everybody can get behind and seeing how that, you know, even at the sort of the individual level, how you are impacting uh, sort of you know the, the 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 areas that you're working in the economies and the people that you're you're providing and this is this is such a wonderful story of um of how that about how that happened i guess from a from a because you know i can i can imagine that that would really sort of really motivate the team but how do you sort of i guess keep that that feeling and that vision as as you go through uh, stages of scale and as you bring more and more people in um how, how have you sort of gone about i guess sort of keeping that yeah, keeping that sort of core motivation there for, for people. The, the most effective technique that I found, um, and, and this is something we started very early on, in 2014 itself we started it, was to get the engineers themselves to do the job of the driver for, for a day. So literally in 2014, we would actually get our new hires to spend their first week being a driver. Right, just to experience what it is to be a driver, and and you know, to, to to because we're also hiring a lot of people that were not from Southeast Asia, also what it meant to be a passenger, right? So that they can um, ex get get the Grab experience. And when they're a driver, that means that they would go and speak with other drivers, um, you know, as part of their immersion, and they would just come back completely transformed, right? They would have you know all these amazing stories about you know the passengers that they picked up, you know, and the experiences that they went through how difficult it is to be in eight, to drive for eight, 10, 10 hours a day, you know, how sore their back was after driving for eight, 10 hours a day, how difficult the app was, to, you know, how difficult it is to use the app while they're driving. And that, had, that really colored um, uh, a lot of the product development uh, that, that went into the app subsequently. Yeah? Engineers themselves would, 
you know, would say that I want to work on X, Y, Z because as you know, when I experienced being a driver, this was the pain point that I had, right? You know, that, that really helped a lot in terms of just building, you know, just really listening to the customers and, uh, you know, listening to the user base and just solving for the problems that they were facing. As we grew, you know, that, that was no, you know, that just became no longer possible, um, you know, being a driver. So what we would have is that we would have, uh, we, we set up two types of programs. We set up a, a customer immersion program and we set up what is known as a customer experience uh, immersion program. You know, the, the first, what we would do is that we would pair every new joiner to the organization with a driver. And so, so they would, you know, be, as the, you know, the driver will be driving like, and this would be a grab driver, but the, the grabber, uh, the, the new grab, you know, we call them grabbers, they, they would be seated in the passenger seat and then they would spend the whole day with that driver. Yeah. They would go to, uh, you know, we would have weekly driver gathering sessions, right? And, and they, so, so all, all the, the engineers, every single new member of the Grab organization would go and join this meeting session. You know, drivers would have no end of stories to share, right? About all the problems that they have with the app, um, you know, of, of the type of customers that, you know, that would pick up, uh, you know, they, they, would, they would ask why have we developed things in a certain way? You know, they'd have no, no, no shortage of questions, yeah? But they also, you know, have, you know, they've been, you know, most of these drivers have been in the industry for like, you know, decades, and they would also have just a tremendous amount of experience, right, as to what it would mean to build a world-class product right um what what were the correct problems to solve for and i think that made a big difference in terms of ensuring the engineering team really just kept connected to the mission the second thing that we did um, was um, having the engineers spend a couple of hours just shadowing a customer experience agent right and this would be this these are basically our call center so when people call in with a problem whether it's from a passenger whether it's from a driver whether it's from a merchant um, our engineers would just be shadowing the customer experience agents and just listening, just listening in as to the problem. <laughs> you know, I remember when I joined, you know, so, so this programs run on a regular basis and I typically join them once a quarter. I remember once I joined a customer experience immersion program and I noticed that the customer experience was logging into the system and every fifth or sixth click, he would get logged out. And it was clear that he was so used to getting logged out that he would he had like automated it such that he would get logged in immediately again, right? Um, and we, we built all our customer experience tooling internally. <laughs> um, so clearly there was a problem with the system. So I asked him, look, hey, what's happening? And he says, oh yeah, it has been like this for the last three months. And have you reported it? He said, yeah, we have reported it, but you know, it's in the backlog somewhere. And they tell me it's going to take X amount of time to fix. And I messaged one of my guys and I said, look, this is happening. Are you aware? And he said, huh, I heard about it, but I was not aware. So I sent him like a video, right? I just took my phone out, I videotaped, took, took a recording of, of the customer experience agent having this problem and yeah. I sent it to my engineer. And then he looks at it and says, huh, I think I know where the problem is, right? And it turned out to be some session related uh, issue and, and he fixed it, deployed it, and that's it. Like it just got solved within minutes. <laughs> uh, and I thought to myself, wow, if, if, if we had not had this program, like, you know, this bug would have just been somewhere in the backlog for months until it got prioritized to be picked up to be fixed. Right. Um, so, you know, so, sorry, this is a long answer, you know, to, to what you had asked, but I felt that this, just my experience has been that engineers no. need to speak to customers on a regular basis. Right. 
face to face, right? And just it, it just keeps them super connected to how people are using the product, the pain points that they're feeling, and you know, being being connected with the mission, right? That, that they're here to serve the people of Southeast Asia. I guess if you if you were to have some advice for for managers or for people who are growing a team, you know, obviously you've gone through, you've seen scale from, <laughs> I guess, a single digit to team through to to teams of hundreds. I guess what's the biggest change you've had to make in your your approach to management? And if you could give two or three bits of advice from a, a management perspective, what would they be? How 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 do you think that that sort of journey is is has been sort of has affected your style and what learnings have you have you had from it? So when when, when you know there's a drastic difference when an organization is at steady state and. You know, you know, just you know, I was sharing earlier that when I was at Asia, you know, it was a very comfortable environment. An organization at steady state tends to be comfortable, and the type of activities a manager engages at in an organization at steady state will be drastically different to that of a growing organization. And being in a growth organization, it, it is an experience like no other. Um, it it really fires up the day. Um, you know, it really provides a sense of energy to to what 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 uh, you know we we are doing. But it also comes with a set of challenges, yeah. And those challenges tend to hit management. Uh, those tend to be management type of challenges. One of the most valuable advisors that my, you know, we we had a we have an advisor, a tech advisor at, at Grab that gave me very early on. And I think this was, I think 2014, 2015 was. It, it's okay to sleep over technical problems, right? It's okay to give give it a bit more time, think about what is the right way to solve a technical problem. People problems, however, need to be addressed immediately. You know, it's it's you know, if there's a people problem in front of me as a manager, I need to address it today. Yeah, I need to uh, find some way of making sure it gets resolved. Um, the most amount of depth an organization can take up is often not technical depth; it's, it's organizational people depth. Yeah, and people depth uh, compound and they multiply, and at some point. You know, it, it does go kaboom, yeah, and and it, it's not worth, it, it it's not worth the, the the pain that it'll cost to the organization. So address it as early and as quickly as possible. Getting the right cultural fit is far more important than getting the best engineer. Software engineering is a team sport, yeah. Um, people who can work together often outperform people who you know are you know brilliant individual contributors yeah um I, i'm not saying that you know there's a lot of value that brilliant individual contributors bring to the table but if you know <laughs> um, if they can't work with others if they're brilliant jerks um they can become a net negative to the to the larger organization so that cultural fit component uh you know being willing to work together as a team uh, becomes a force multiplier um, that that should not be underestimated. I, I would actually give you know, people have asked me, look, why is it that my taxi succeeded in Malaysia? Was well, that something about Malaysia that has helped, that helped right with 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 the early founding team? And and I think there's some truth to that question. I think that Malaysians, um, you know, culturally get along very well with others, right? Um, you know, it's just in our it's it's just in our history and our culture that we have learned. How to get along with you know it's a multicultural society so we have learned how to be uh, to understand to listen to 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 talk to each other to to get into conversation 
um, it is one of the strengths. Um, I, I, I do have doubts whether my taxi would have succeeded in, in the early stages if it, had, you know, if it had just been started in, in any other uh, country, yeah? So, so I, I, would, I, I would index very heavily on making sure as a manager, focusing on making sure that people, you know, that, that the team dynamics are strong, healthy, that people issues, that you're not, you know, incurring people depth, organizational depth, and that, um, that people get along with each other. It, it's really, really important. Just to, out of curiosity, just to on that point, you know, it's, it sort of very, very much leans into the maxim that, um, you know, a t an A team isn't necessarily a team of A players. It's it's the sum of <laughs> it's often more than the sum of its its parts. When you're when you're bringing people in, both at the sort of the team level and at the leadership level, how how do you screen for for that ability to collaborate? And, you know. I guess sort of where, where you know are there any sort of warning signs that you you sort of seen? I know we get a little bit granular on hiring process, but it's really interesting because it's quite often it's quite a um, uh, sort of woolly woolly topic. There, there there are no necessarily sort of hard data points you can you can index on during the process. But I guess how do you how do you screen for that for that? And it's 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 a focus on the I versus the V. It's about when a person, you know, when, when, you're, when, you're, when I'm talking to them during an interview, how much they talk about their team versus talking about themselves. Um, there's a very strong correlation when a person almost solely talks about himself and that person not being a cultural fit at, at Grab. Yeah, the person might be a good fit at, in other type of organizations, but at Grab, at least in, you know, in, in, in the type of culture that we have, it, it's very much, um, it's important that um, people be a team player, yeah? So, so it's that focus on I versus the we. It's a focus on this is what I did. This is you know, what I delivered versus this is what my team did. This is versus what my team delivered. Um, when we ask them about their accomplishments and they say, look, I, I increased revenue by X, from X to Y. And if that's all that they share, then to me, that's a red flag. But you say, look, I built this leader, you know, you know uh, you know the, the the team uh you know sh build this product and 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 achieve this um that the team had this you know the best engagement score within the organization to me to me that you know those those are positive signs yeah it's it's really just a focus of i versus a we yeah um one one of the most instructive books i read early in my career was people wear and and this was many years ago i think it <laughs> may have been 10 maybe may have been 15 years ago and it spoke about a manager who, who, who felt that her job was, um, that the most important thing that she did in her job was that when her team was going through some tough times, that she was there to support them, right? Um, when, when they had a, a very urgent deadline to deliver games and one of the team members was sick but still insisted on coming to work, her job was to bring soup you know, at a lunchtime to this person, right? To me, those are the type of qualities I look for in managers. Um, you know, um, you know the, the 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 delivery aspect of being a manager can be easily be mastered by anybody, but the empathetic aspect really, you know, speaks volume about the character of the person. Yeah, and and that is not something that you can fake, or that's not something you can just master by reading a book or having you know a bit of experience. That just take that just goes to the core of who that person is. Yeah, so so that's that's what we, we we screen for. There are of course other aspects as well, right? Like you'd screen for, uh, you know, depending on the role, the role may require a certain amount of experience, exposure in a certain field, you know, so on and so forth, right? But 
but when it comes to um, you know character, I, I definitely screen for those who who index more on their team versus themselves. That's possibly one of the the sort of the the the, the nicest metrics of um, the I versus we. It sort of really distills down the um, the, the mindset perhaps of a, of a person um, and and what they what they find valuable and what what they put value in as a, as as both their sort of achievements and and their their sort of triggers of success. And so that's a really really succinct point. Actually, what is also telling is the questions that uh, candidates ask. If they ask questions about um, you know, uh, if they ask questions around, you know, team health, what we do as an organization to uplift people, to me, that that's just a wonderful indicator that this person is focused on the right things. If they, you know, and, and if they focus on metrics, like, look, what's in it for me, I, I, I feel that's, that's not a, that's not a wrong question, like, but it's woefully inadequate, right? They, they, <laughs> um, if, if, if they're focusing on, you know, what, what the organization can provide for them. Yes, I, I think that's an important question, but that cannot be the only question. The, the bigger question is, how does the organization uplift everybody? How does the organization have a vision and a mission that, you know, inspires people? How does the organization serve the people of, you know, Southeast Asia? How does it serve the customers? Like, these are all the type of, you know, this indicator type of questions when, when people ask that, when candidates ask them during interview, it, it's, it really goes a long way off long way to you know explaining who they are you know at, at their core and what what's important to them well one of the things i'm keen to explore is um obviously you know you, you sort of mentioned you know i think it was 2014 you went as, a, as an example you went from 100 to a million rides per day in in indonesia um that scale sounds and, and i i'd imagine that was happening whilst all the other countries you were operational in were were growing at something something similar to that what kind of what kind of headaches did that give you guys technically, and how how did you support that level of growth? I mean, it, you know, it sounds like every day there would have been significant significant growth and 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 significant headaches. I guess could you talk us through a little bit about the, the technical journey at that point as well? It it was very difficult, very very difficult technically, um, for for a few reasons. It was a very small organization. Um, that that was growing fast um and it grew really really fast i think for four to five years yeah so so um when an organization grows fast um that in itself i think you know it, it kind of introduces a set of complexity um around people culture leadership um you know uh, uh, you know what are the uh, what are the types of processes to implement um it it it, it does put a strain on the organization so Trying to solve technical problem while you have that backdrop of that's you know that stress and that strain does complicate matters somewhat. On the technical side, it became very clear that there were a set of key technical decisions that we needed to make in order to be able to scale. What tend you know what what failed most frequently was our databases. And the reason it would fail most frequently was because our workload was very poor. Uh, you know, uh, we, we were not using the database efficiently. In fact, we, we had not even given how we were using the database any thought at all, right? We were just using it as a dumb store. And the database was saying, look, I can't, you know, I can't cope with the workload that you're giving me. What I think made things a little more tricky was that there were, you know, a couple of bugs. Uh, we, we, we were fully cloud native. 
we were very early uh, adopters of AWS in, in the region. And so we are cloud native since day one. And there were a couple of bugs, uh, you know, within the AWS control plane. And, and so we went down a few times as a result of that as well. <laughs> I remember uh, once our database was down for entire day, an entire day. And that was because they had, they, we, we, our workload had exploited a certain bug that was in the network card that uh, in, in the firmware of the network card um, in, in, in RDS, uh, which is the relational data store service that, uh, that, that AWS provides, you know, the managed service that they provide. And, and uh, you know, it got escalated to a point that at which point we had like 10 global VPs on the call, you know, um, try, trying to solve. And, and they, did, they did, you know, to their credit, they did, did fix it. But it, it was it was a black it, it was it was just really tough on the team right um, ha having to deal with all the angry customers. Um, what we learned was that it was just really important to architect the data layer well. So we spent a good six months um, and and you know we, we were talking of having the right type of engineers earlier on in this podcast. One of our mobile engineers said, "Look, I want to understand how to build backend systems." he decided he's going to build our allocation system from scratch. And uh, he had guidance from our uh, CTO then. And uh, they, they sat down and they redesigned our entire allocation, allocation system from scratch. Uh, and it's called the booking service, which is being used up to today, right? And they built it with a very scalable data uh, uh, layer uh, architecture in place. And in the process, we had to revisit a lot of assumptions that we made around what it takes to, what a scalable architecture means. You know, one very common scalable, archi uh, you know, architecture template or pattern is horizontal scaling, right? But it turns out that comes with a set of costs uh, as well. And if instead of going stateless, if we, we asked ourselves, what if we go stateful, right? Which means we can't scale horizontally anymore, but we know what the constraints of being stateful introduces. Once we know the constraints, we actually can engineer and uh, uh, to take advantage of all the benefits that being stateful gives us, right? And so it was it was designed in that way, which was a very controversial decision at that time um, because nobody <laughs> uh, had thought that we should go from very few people had thought that we should go from stateless to stateful systems. Uh, but it turned out to be the right decision. We we architected a multi-layer database, uh, you know, a hot coal layer. And that really, you know, that it's it's an architectural decision that has scaled up to today. It went from that few hundred thousand rights to the many many millions of rights that that we have today. Yeah, um, that mobile engineer built this entire backend system um, in a, in a, you know in a new language that we picked up. Then Go, we actually moved from Node.js and Ruby to a new language Go that the entire organization standardized on. And he said, "Look, I'm just going to pick this up and we'll run with it." And you know he just did such a great job that it's it's, it's running up to today. Yeah. The the key lessons were that we just needed to architect our systems every eighteen months because there were just so many things about uh, the business um, that we didn't know ahead of time to architect for. Yeah. So so we just needed to make sure that we we kept rearchitecting the system on a regular basis or rebuilding parts of the system on a regular basis so that it could scale. Yeah. And that's how we progressively got rid of bottlenecks. One thing that we did, I think this was in, uh, during 2016 was we started investing a lot in data science. 
and started making a lot of our algorithmically driven allocation systems into machine learning systems. And the machine learning systems could pick up things that you know, we could, could have never figured out. For example, the allocation system learned by itself that in Singapore at certain times, there would be in certain places, there would be a spike of traffic. And that was very surprising to us that, that, you know, that, the, the, that, the, that the machine learning system would, would learn something as unique as this. So we went to look at it and it turned out that the machine learning system had learned that ferries would be arriving in Singapore at certain times. And then at the ferry terminal, there would be a spike in demand, you know, when, when that ferry comes in, right? So it's just tough, you know, it's just, just learnings like that, that, that uh, by, by, by just building new capabilities, we, we just learned a lot more about our, our own supply demand uh, allocation. So 2016, we built a, a, you know, a data science platform. We, we had to re-architect our entire data engineering layer at least three times, just because we were just growing so rapidly. We, we used a number of external vendors, but then our rate of growth was so rapid that we broke them on a weekly basis and they just got prohibitively expensive. So we ended up just building our own uh, internal platforms and tools. I, I remember once, you know, like one, one big problem that we had is that we are a mobile first organization and we needed to be able to debug problems on the mobile apps. But, you know, <laughs> if it's a backend system problem, it's easy to debug. When it's on a mobile app, it's a lot harder to debug. So we, so we needed a way to instrument all aspects of our mobile app. So we actually built an in-house platform to do this, right? That would just collect um, millions and millions of uh, data points daily, yeah? And then, you know, collecting them wasn't enough. We then had to get them, we needed to be able to analyze them uh, rapidly within minutes. And that just becomes a very difficult problem, uh, you know, a, a very difficult engineering problem because a, a certain set of, big data problems <laughs> uh, constraints come come into play so so we had to figure out what's the right way to to build this and then we did and what really paid off when building this is that uh, because our app itself was you know we, we had gone from a monthly release to a two-week release cycle then we went to a weekly release cycle and there's just so much of new code going into an into the app that um, the app itself was becoming slow and, and so we needed to be able to instrument in a detailed form all the things that were contributing to the app start being slow and for certain uh, parts of the app experience being slow. And this is where this underlying platform, we call it Scribe, this underlying platform came in useful because within hours of a new app being released, we could, we could already start analyzing what is working and what's not working. Um, we could, you know, this underlying platform, you know, we, we also built an experimentation platform that provided very rigorous um, backend and mobile side experimentation capabilities. And this platform, um, you know, as, as a side effect also allowed us to, you know, feature flag pretty much everything. So we could then, you know, as the app, uh, you know, you know, when, when, as the app started, we could turn uh, features on the app start on and off, which then allowed us to, you know, um, uh, determine what was working in more, run experiments more, more or less in real time. Um, so all these things, really fun engineering work, um, really, really, you know, it made a, a tremendous impact, I think, to the product itself, to the, to the type, you know, just allowing us to really move fast, right? Just try things out, move fast, collect data, tweak, historically has been hard to do.
So, so I feel like this is one of the areas where, you know, we have, we have really done a, it's something I'm proud of, right? The team, the team has done a really, really great job. One of the, one of the things that's sort of very interesting about that, that was very interesting to me from that sort of, that, that's, that sort of story is that it sounds like you took um, decisions based on, based on logic and sort of experimentation, which weren't necessarily dogmatic to perceived best, best practice. Um, you know, with the, when you talk about the stateless versus stateful architecture and the sort of limitations of, of sort of horizontal scaling in this particular sort of situation, it's, it sounds like the, the level of sort of, I guess, intellectual rigor that was put into these processes sort of came from a point where it's like, okay, let's just almost forget what best practice looks like and look at the best way to solve this problem. Um, did you ever find, uh, firstly, do, do you agree with that? And secondly, did you ever find that that perhaps was very challenging for um, some software practitioners who had perhaps um, grown up in a slightly more dogmatic kind of environment or that, you know, they had a particularly strong view on the best way to do something. And when you came with this sort of slightly iconoclastic kind of approach, did you sort of have many people that really sort of were, were too, quite challenged by this approach? Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> you know, um, engineers and engineering teams um, can be a very opinionated bunch. Yeah. Um, and this led to a lot of internal debates, a lot. I, I think it's a sign of a healthy team when healthy debates can be had. Yeah. For a very long time, you know, this is a slight tangent, but for a very long time, we found that debates tended to be very opinion based as opposed to being data based. Right. And just being able to shift that conversation to becoming a more data oriented, less opinion uh, or less, you know, best practices, you know, driven, I think took, a, it was a mindset, mindset shift within the organization itself. Because we just uh, said, look, we are not going anywhere with an opinion-based approach. We, we just had to accept that, that view, yeah? There were many, many best, best practices debates, right? Uh, you know, microservices versus fat services versus, you know, monoliths. You know, when we shifted from Ruby and um, Node.js to Go, you know, there was a Go versus Scala debate. <laughs> when we, um, so, so. Uh, you know, there, there was a very, you know, we, there, there was a strong push to adopt Docker earlier on. And, you know, so, so there was that debate, right? Whether we should, we should be containerized. And if we, if we saw a containerized, what sort of container should we be used? Um, a lot of this was driven by, hey, look, this is a cool, you know, a lot of these discussions are driven by, hey, look, this is a cool technology. Let's use it. And, and Docker was a case in point, right? Like, look, Docker is cool in, in you know, in a few years back. Um, before there was widespread users like Docker is cool. Let's try to use it. When you know, you know, when when the organization was growing so fast and things were, you know, systems were failing because they couldn't uh, keep up with the growth. Having conversations about what's cool, I think, to some extent, helped the team be motivated. But it had to be balanced with, you know, being pragmatic. Yeah, um, we also just needed to make sure we focused on supporting the growth of the business, right? As opposed to being sidetracked into, into you know, um, implementing something that may not be able to support type of demand or volume that was coming in. Um, one good tool that we ended up utilizing was RFCs. We started a culture of RFCs uh, and RFC stands for request for comments. Literally an engineer would sit down and write an RFC document and would ask all the other engineers to review it and provide comments. 
um, we, we, we set up an internal info, you know, it started off a bit more informally uh, and it was called ARCHCO, stands for Architectural Committee, which is not the intent of what this, this, this small group of people were, it wasn't a committee saying yes and no to key decisions, but it was more a team that would guide the debate of a particular RFC, right? It, it, uh, they, they would moderate the conversation around whether to, you know, whether we should adopt, for example, Cassandra, whether we should adopt Flutter for mobile, and would 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 moderate that debate between the engine, the larger engineering organization, and and this turned out to be an incredibly useful mechanism to allow um, people to have healthy, constructive debates. Yeah, it also became very clear when. You know, the, the, the you know they, they had this term, the wisdom of the internet, right? Um, or the wisdom of the crowds. It also became very clear when certain technologies may have had, you know, very ardent proponents, but then clearly, when you brought in the larger engineering organization who who didn't have who didn't have you know um, a stake either way, they they would they would be able to kind of um, moderate, uh, you know, come come to a more neutral middle middle ground view, yeah. Um, and I think that has helped a lot. I, to, to your earlier point, Sam, I think you are right that we, we took you know, a first principles approach. Um, and to a large extent, we did this because we honestly didn't know better. Southeast Asia has, 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 has never seen scale like this. And we just needed to uh, build systems from the ground up and just work from first principles, right? And be willing to experiment and try, you know, not rule anything out. This did lead us down some, you know, paths that in hindsight, maybe we should not have gone down, but look, there's no other better way for an engineering organization to learn. One, for example, one difficult decision we had to make was, it was very clear that for backend services, we probably just needed to have one language that we couldn't fragment the languages. You know, it, it makes a lot of other conversations a lot uh, significantly easier. But what was not as clear is should we have only one database, right? For example, should it be MySQL? Should it be Postgres? What you know, can we have multiple databases? And you know, engineers really love their databases, right? So you know, some people want to use Mongo, some people love Postgres, some people you know uh, loved uh, Cassandra. Almost nobody loved MySQL, um, but we had to make that call just because <laughs> database technology is um, very, you know, databases are very complicated beasts. Yeah. Um, it, it's one of the hardest, you know, building a database is one of the hardest computer science, you know, projects, right? Scaling a database is really, really tough. So th 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 we, we just had to standardize on one. Yeah. And uh, that, that was not an easy, easy decision, but the process that I shared I think you know the RFC process helped a lot in time in terms of just bringing alignment in in the larger organization. In, in, you know, there's obviously a lot of uh, a lot of very sort of exciting things in the news for for Grab the Digital Bank sort of consortium with with Singtel, you know, a number of other sort of high profile things going on. Um, what's next for the organization and and, and sort of and what does that sort of mean for the for the engineering obviously it's you know they're turning into much more of an ecosystem um so what do you think is next and and, and how is that going to impact how the, the engineering sort of environment is gonna is gonna change so a lot of the from an engineering perspective 
um, a lot of the technology that we have built internally, we have actually come to a realization that this tech is actually pretty cool, right? Um, it's, it's technology that um, we built for ourselves, but we are you know, we feel that, that, you know, that there may be a, look, there may be a market out there, right? That may be willing to, you know, there may be people who have similar problems, similar challenges, and people may be willing to use this technology, yeah? So that, that's, a, that's something that we are exploring, whether we can externalize some of this technology. The other thing that we are uh, really building up internally is um, there's, a, there's a focus on, you know, you, know, you spoke about DigiBank. Uh, there's just a, a big focus within the Grab, larger Grab organization around, you know, the, the Grab financial group. Um, which covers everything from financial services to, you know, payments to, you know, uh, things like, you know, now, now, now grab is, you know, um, to, to get it Singtel, we're going to be a, uh, you know, a digital bank. In the financial services uh, industry, um, there's a way to build an architect for technology that is a bit different from typically how things are done in the technology world. These are, these are uh, businesses which are, typically very regulated um, by, you know, the regulatory authorities, um, you know, in Singapore, it's the, it's MAS in Malaysia, it's BNM, you know, each country has got its regulatory authority and they will look for uh, certain, um, they, they will, they will try to ensure that, you know, um, certain practices are in place, right? So that technology risk are, are correctly managed. And, and it is right that they do that. Because you know, at the end of the day, this involves people's uh, money, right? And it involves uh, trust in the financial system. So it's right that they do that. And we, as an organization, it's important that we adhere to this, um, so that um, you know we provide that comfort to our users, right? That that we have got all the right guardrails in place, um, all the right processes in place. So um, a, a big part of what we are doing right now in engineering. Um, is extending a lot of these practices in the Grab Financial Group to the larger engineering organization. Um, for example, on the mobility side, we would not have, um, you know, all, all, all the services would run off out of AWS Singapore. Yeah. But then we got to start thinking about the world, about a world where maybe we may need to localize, you know, some of the compute, some of the data in certain countries, right, in order to meet certain regulatory uh, requirements. And this is something that we on the on the Grab Financial Group side, you know, this sort of fundamentals have been there since day one, simply because it was just required by 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 the nature of the industry that this this you know that this engineering org was working with. But now we are beginning to extend that to the rest of the Grab group. Yeah. So these are the type of things that we have been working on, Sam. Just touching on digital banking, you know, it is a very uh, exciting area to to a large extent. You know, digital banking, the digital DigiBank group um, is going to benefit from a lot of the technology that we have built up in the larger Grab organization. The one thing that we have spent actually a lot of time working on over the last 18 months, and you know, we'll continue working on in 2021, is making sure that uh, that it meets all the technology constraints that a banking technology arm needs to adhere to. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so that will be the, the focus in 2021. And uh, just from from that perspective, because it sounds like a, a lot of the a lot of the technology that you guys have have already built could be could be retasked for um, 
for the financial services or for the specifically for the um for the digital banking group i know obviously it's it's early days but do, do, do you think that 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 gives you a big advantage that you've got a lot of really complex systems that are that are built for scale that you can and and this understanding of the financial services um sort of regulatory environment do you think that's a real sort of advantage that you can just apply those those learnings and that that technology to to getting something up and running that's really robust and really sort of regulatory compliant in in quite a short space of time is that is that the hope yes that that's exactly the the, the plan we, we are looking to adopt as well as um adapt the the technology platforms that we have built in the other parts of grab within digibank um, an example would be our experimentation platform that i spoke about earlier um you know uh, yeah, it comes with a set of functionality services features that you know if you were to just build from scratch it will take a number of years yeah to 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 build that from scratch and if of course if you're going to go with an external vendor then you'll just be hamstrung yeah. with you know a set of limitations so one thing that however you know just to kind of emphasize that we have to do is making make sure that this software conforms to all the banking regulations yeah and and that that will take a bit of time but we are confident that we can do it Thank you. And honestly, it's been it's 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 so enlightening. And I thank you so much for 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 sharing in such detail. It's 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 such an interesting topic, and it's wonderful to hear your experiences. Thank you very much for that. But um, before we close off, we obviously have the quick fire questions. Um, have you had a look through? Are you prepared? Are you ready for the quick fire questions? Yes. Yes. Uh, they're they're interesting questions. So I'll I'll, I'll give them <laughs> uh, the uh, best shot. Okay, excellent. Um, and so, okay, so let's get started on that. So, firstly, what is the best advice you've been given? Um, I, I I touched on this earlier. It was on you know making sure you don't sleep on people problems. Um, you know that that I, I feel this advice has really shaped me, and a lot of decisions I've made over the years. Um, the other piece of uh, advice, actually, there's something I've read is that people may not remember what I say, but they will definitely remember how I made them feel. And you know, this this has really colored the way I interact. You know, you know, ex especially you know, in this remote environment that we are in, right? Like this work from home environment that we are in, where where people only thing that they have got to go on is is the voice. So it's very important to kind of focus on how we are making people feel. Yeah. So but not not just the content, but also of the 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 tone and the style. It's very important. It's actually something I've been sort of uh, as I've run teams over the years. That's been pretty much the main thing. I uh, missed that you say that nobody will remember. They probably won't remember where you met. They probably won't remember what you talked about. They definitely won't remember what you say. But again, that how how you made them feel is 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 the lasting impression. So where's the um where's the first place you're going to visit once the uh once the COVID restrictions are, are lifted? Disneyland with the kids. <laughs> that was our plan um, in January. Um, and I think my, my wife made the right call by saying, nope, um, let's not take the risk. So definitely 2021, we are going to make our way to Disneyland. And um, what's, your, what's your most obscure hobby? Oh, this is a good one. Um, <laughs> I had to think for a while. What, um, so recently I got introduced to this board game called Takenoko, and it's on, on this online, okay. I played on this online site called Board Games Arena. It's a pretty addictive game. Um, I recommend people to check it out. And and if if you're on there, you can look me up. And you know, I'm just Tidesh. I think that's my username. The other thing that I do um, is I, I don't know how many people know about this YouTube 
series. It, it's called uh, Number File, um, and it, it's just just YouTube videos and interviews with just mathematicians on numbers, and and that that has been, you know, I, I go to sleep at night like that's the I I spend about half an hour watching that. Um, you know, most nights just because it's, it's, you know, the world of numbers is fascinating. And what that has kind of led me to yeah. is solving numerical math problems. Um, there are certain problems that are just, you know, they're just this open am amateur, you know, math problems, which can be solved with the computer. You know, I, I just spend, you know, when I've got some off time, I just sit down and I code and I spend trying to solve those problems. Well, what was the board game you mentioned and, and what was it that makes it, that makes it sort of uh, interesting to you? It's, it's called Takin Noko, and it's about a Japanese garden, and you've got to plant bamboos, and um, there's, and, and this, pan, you know, this panda will go around eating these bamboos, and, you know, there's a gardener that would plant the bamboos, and it's about laying out the plots in this garden, and it all sounds very zen and, you know, very calming, but actually it's, it's you know, it, it's a very vigorous, and you know, it's almost, you know, you, you play against somebody, and, and both of you have certain objectives to meet and you know whoever meets those objectives yeah. first wins the game so and it's it's almost going to war with the other person <laughs> so it's very very competitive you know it sounds zen <laughs> but it's 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 actually super competitive i must have played hundreds and hundreds of games and each game lasts you know if, if you're playing you know just continuously it, it lasts you know 10 15 minutes so these are short games but there's so many different strategies that can emerge from, from such a simple game, it really also depends on the strategy that your opponent has undertaken. So then you'd adopt, you know, uh, according, uh, adapt and adopt accordingly. Yeah. So, so that, that has, it's, it's pretty fun. Okay. So the next, next question is, um, what is your favorite terrible management slogan? Uh, my one is everybody knows is when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> that, your, that's a good one. What's the, the, the one you love to hate? <laughs> The, the, the one that, you know, comes to mind is, and, I, and I've heard people say this, that, you know, managers do the, do things right. Leaders do the right thing. Every time I hear this, I cringe because, you know, it, it, it's just so artificial, right? Like leadership is not about a title. It's not about a role, right? Uh, it's far more encompassing. And, and so is management. So it, this is just one of those pithy sentences that lacks substance. You know, it makes me cringe when I hear it. Brings a very very complex topic down to a uh, a LinkedIn post worthy binary statement. That's right. So that's right. <laughs> Two more questions to go. Um, first one is, tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. You know, I read this in Peter Thiel's book, right? Um, I, I think um, a number of years ago when 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 his book came out, and I I, I did ponder upon it. Tongue in cheek, what I tell my friends is that you know, a zombie apocalypse is, is due. And, and this year, <laughs> I think has, you know, they never believed me, but now, now I think they're more uh, receptive. Uh, maybe, maybe not a zombie apocalypse, but um, an apocalypse nonetheless. Um, no, no, I was, you feel slightly vindicated with the, um, <laughs> with the prediction now. Uh, that, that's right. That's right. Um, I, I, I have been uh, fascinated with the advances that we have been making in biotech. And I feel, you know, something I still hold to be true, but I admit it's more of a belief is that our generation, this generation, your and my generation will be the first generation that I feel will 
will have the opportunity to live forever if he choose to. Most of the most common reasons for aging would have been solved. This will happen within our generation. You know, barring you know some unfortunate accident, the most common reasons for um, aging and death would would have been solved. So, if he if he wanted to, we could live forever. So, uh, not not many people agree with this. Uh, it's, it feels o- overly optimistic. Yeah. Uh, especially the bit that this that this would be the first generation that I feel that may live forever. But I think to myself, what the world was 50 years ago, I think to myself what, what the world was 100 years ago, I think to myself how far medical technology has come, how far technology just, as a, just in general has come, how it has uplifted the world in unrecognizable way, ways. And I just think to, my, you know, I think to myself, this is an inevitability. And if I, and there's no reason for me to be uh, pessimistic that it will not happen in our generation. One of the um, the things that's interesting to explore as well is obviously there's the, the sort of biological aspect of, of of living forever and sort of being being a huge sci-fi nerd I can I can I can probably dip into a few different sources on on this sort of thing but what what are your thoughts around the the ideas of sort of digital consciousness and obviously you know from both a um, you know we're, we're, we're you know potentially approaching a singularity at some point in the next few decades um, but also the the sort of the, the symbiosis, I guess, of, of human and machine. Um, what, what are your what are your thoughts and predictions, I guess, on on, on that as we're on the yeah, as we're on this sort of fun future topic? It is it will be inevitable that our thought processes would would be augmented with technology. That that seems inevitable in our lifetime. Now whether there would be a singularity, whether we'd be able to download our minds, you know, in out, out to to you know to, to an external entity, it, it would be it it would be possible. It, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. Um, but I would ask this question: why? Why would you want not to have your 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 human, you know, why would you not want to have your physical body? You know, one thing that I have been doing during this year of lockdowns is I've been focusing on, you know, my, my, my personal you know, health. I've been focusing on strength building. And this is, you know, for, for, uh, for somebody who has never been particularly into the physical aspect, right? Never really paid attention to, you know, my, the physical aspect of things. Um, I found that our bodies are the most wonderful machines um, they are just capable of so much why would we want why would i want to not be in my body anymore like like to me to me you know i'll, I'll be giving up what what is greatest about you know one of the things which is greatest about you know who i am as a person right that, that that's that's just you know that's, that's just a perspective that i have um, the other thing that's worth considering is this there's this you know great documentary on netflix Call my Oct- octopus teacher, and, and he talks about this. Um, I, I think it's a biologist or a diver who you know spends a year with an octopus, right, in 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 the ocean, and go and you know immerses himself into the octopus's world, and he talks about how the octopus's identity is just spread throughout the entire body, right, you know through through its through its tentacles, through its suckers, you know it, you know it, it's it's neural uh, being is just spread throughout the entire body. What is to say that that's not true of us humans as well, right? That what makes us who we are um, requires us to have that physical body, 
yeah um, that just being purely digital will remove a big part of what makes us human yeah no and then this this is a topic that um i think has been explored a lot in um in science fiction and science it's um fascinating and I, we, i'm sure we could go on for, for hours but i know we've been we've been going for a while already so and i, I guess the last question was probably something we've already answered but um it's uh, what part of the future is uh, are you most excited by i i you know originally i would have said biotech and i think that's still true i think in near future i would have been ex, you know i am most excited biotech that there are a couple of really good podcasts um um, I, I believe on on the New York Times uh, sway where, where they talk with what it took to develop the vaccine, right? Uh, the, the, the 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 technology approach that they undertook to develop the COVID nine vaccine, right? With with mRNA, and you know it's just it's just such a testament to modern technology, modern biotech. You know, um, we have come so far that we can do. We, we can achieve this within in the order of months as opposed to years or decades. It's, it's just incredible. Can you imagine what is going to be possible 50 years from now? It's, you know, the, the world will be unrecognizable. I, you know, just taking that thought one step further, I think that a Star Trek type universe may be possible. That um, we may, you know, Biotech will make medical problems, most medical problems, irrelevant. That technology will just uplift. It's already uplifting the whole world, but it'll continue to uplift. Uh, it'll become, you know, a great economic equalizer. It will become, and you know, provide opportunities where where previously, um, you know, opportunities would have been limited. It would have revolutions in power production. Would would. Uh, uplift big parts of you know uh, the world that don't have access to you know simple things like <laughs> you know running running you know just running water electricity maybe not in our lifetime but my children's lifetime maybe even my grandchildren's lifetime can you imagine living in a Star Trek type universe right where you know there's just a lot of what we have fought wars over no longer those reasons will probably will no longer exist yeah um it's 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 a very it's it's you know that's what i'm looking forward to uh, what a what a wonderful place to finish um but, uh, to test, thank you thank you so much it's been it's been such a fun session and thank you for all your sort of deep insights on the, the growth of grab that's been that's been really insightful and really 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 great to hear um so thank you very much for your your time and um yeah i, I look forward to speaking with you again again soon Thanks so much, Sam. Um, I, I, I had fun <laughs> on this podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. We will be back in the new year and have some fascinating guests lined up as we continue our exploration of Southeast Asia's most exciting businesses and investors. Here's wishing you a Merry Christmas, a prosperous new year, and health and safety for you, your friends, your loved ones, and your family. Until next year, stay safe and farewell. Oh, yeah.